Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. A new Netflix film captured imaginations this holiday season. Don't Look Up has become the second highest stream movie ever on Netflix. Here are the nominees for original screenplay. Don't Look Up, screenplay by Adam McKay, story by Adam McKay and David Sirota. Everyone's been asking me whether I got the Oscar like $150,000 swag bag, which uh, I didn't. Um, apparently that swag bag only goes to rich and famous actors and uh, directors who don't need it. So um, <laughs> That's perfect. That, yeah. That's everything right there. <laughs> it really is. It really is. We're joined by David Sirota. Last time David was on Deconstructed, he was talking about his, his podcast Meltdown, which is about the way that the financial crisis and kind of more accurately the, the failed response to the financial crisis kind of paved the way to the crisis that we're that we're in now. So I would suggest that if people haven't uh, listened to that yet, I think it's I think it's only on Audible. Is that right? That's right. And so if you if you have Audible, check it out. If not, I actually ripped off Audible once by doing their like month <laughs> month free and then uh, canceling it when I was done with that. Or to go back and check out the interview we did with David. But more more importantly for this episode, David is the writer of, is that the actual credit or story by, like in Hollywood, they're, they're very particular about what the exact credits are. So what, what was your credit for Don't Look Up? So I shared the story by credit on Don't Look Up. Uh, so Adam McKay and I uh, came up with the overall story of Don't Look Up. He wrote the script. Uh, I gave him lots of notes and we came up with a bunch of scenes. He wrote the script, but I was the co-story by credit. And David's also the the co-founder or the founder of the Daily Poster, which is now uh, thelever.com, a kind of progressive investigative news outlet that's been doing doing a lot of great work. Uh, former uh, speechwriter for the Bernie campaign, former Hill staffer, all sorts of different hats. I actually, I don't know if I've told this story on here. I, I first met David in the spring of 2003 when I was a student in David Broder's journalism class at the University of Maryland. And what, what David Broder would do, would he would just, instead of having to teach, he would just bring people in that he respected to have them talk to the class. And one of the people he brought in was a Democratic Hill staffer named David Sirota. Do you remember? I do remember. Speaking to his, his class? I do. He drove me over to the to the class. He picked me up on Capitol Hill uh, in his little car uh, and drove me over to the class. And, you know, for folks who don't know, David Broder was the so-called dean of the <laughs> Capitol Hill Washington Press Corps. For like uh, decades. For decades, yeah. So it was um, it was kind of a, a an interesting kind of honor to be asked to go speak to his class. I was sort of shocked about it. I was working on the House Appropriations Committee where uh, under when George Bush was president and the Iraq war was happening. And because there were a lot of spending fights, we had become one of the few places that were really putting up any kind of a public fight with the Bush administration. 
uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 and the Iraq war. It was, it was a really stifling time on Capitol Hill and in Washington where, you know, the sort of worship of the wartime president was at its peak. And uh, our little team at the House Appropriations Committee, uh, where the president still had to uh, come and ask for money to spend, we were trying to put up the good fight. And one of the one of my memories of that uh, class was that David Broder used to answer his phone in the middle of class. With, <laughs> this was David Broder, and it was a lesson I took with me. Um, he didn't; he had no idea who it was. A lesson in journalism I took with me: just always answer your phone. Uh, because yeah, the problem with that you know, lesson right now, by the way, it doesn't work anymore, really. And I actually no. I don't follow that anymore. Yeah, the problem is is that is that the spam calling on a cell mm-hmm. phone. You, you don't know whether you're answering it. Obviously, and if you answer the spam phone call, then it encourages them to put you on another mm-hmm. spam list because you answered your phone. So, and that's why my I, phone I, is yeah yeah. I get so many spam calls because up until maybe a year, year and a half ago, I still stuck by that broderism of answer the phone because you never know who might be calling you. Uh, so, so you got nominated for an Oscar uh, for best best story i mean it, it got a ton of oscar nominations right for a, a variety of different things right four oscar four oscar nominations uh best picture best screenplay uh best film editing and uh best musical score and so that meant you got to go to the oscars and i'm i'm fascinated by what that kind of cultural experience is like so like first of all who like who does every single nominee get a seat in the Oscars? How big is the place? Or are there politics about you know who gets the seats? I mean, clearly there are politics about where you get a seat because it you know, Will Smith is right there like seven feet away, you know, from Chris Rock. But does everybody go or how does that work? So I I, I believe every nominee uh, is invited with a plus one. So I, I got to go with with my wife Emily. Uh and then I requested uh a couple more tickets uh and uh, the good news is I, I got four other tickets. I brought my parents, I brought my brother-in-law and his wife, and it was a grand old time. I think there's about, I was told that there's about two or 3,000 seats in the Dolby Theater. So it's, it's, a, really, it's a really giant theater. Um, we got to sit on the, I mean, I was sitting sort of probably two or three effectively rows uh, behind Will Smith in, in the center. That they had us at, at sort of tables, and I think they created the, the table system after the um, d- during the pandemic to keep people spread out. But yeah, you were, we were right on the sort of on the floor and amid you know all of these stars and celebrities, and it was um, I definitely felt like a stranger in a strange land, a kind of fish out of water. But it was it was it was one hell of an experience. Are the celebrities in a way fascinated? By you, you know, because if if there's a bunch of fish that are all the same, and then all of a sudden there's a different fish, like this this guy who's involved in politics and and investigative journalism, or or no, they're like if you're not in Hollywood, they they almost can't they almost can't see you unless you have a tray with a drink on it or something. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's definitely a it's kind of like DC in the sense that it's it's a one company town and, or a one industry town. I was told a long time ago that when I started dipping my toe in, into the Hollywood world, that some people would find it particularly interesting that I worked in politics because that's something different. And Hollywood is 
kind of fascinated with Washington uh, and politics and vice versa, by the way, you know, Washington is sort of yes. fascinated with, with Hollywood. So, you know, I mean, there's one, one line I heard said to me was that, you know, if, if Washington uh, is Hollywood for ugly people, as this, as the phrase goes, uh, Hollywood uh, is politics for beautiful people. <laughs> uh, so the, you, there's a lot of politics going on uh, in Hollywood about basically everything, right? I mean, like from everything from where do people get to sit at the Oscars to who gets not uh, nominated, uh, there's politicking to who wins the Oscars. I mean, it's all, these are all little political worlds. Um, but I will, I will say um, one thing that stood out to me in this whole process and granted, I was, I've only been part of this process for one year, but I, it got me thinking, which was that our movie was kind of, it, it's not a real apples to apples movie with the other movies that were there in this sense, that our movie was explicitly political. It was explicitly in the here and now. And if you look at, at most of the other films that were nominated, um, it, most of those films are very different from that. They're they're not really explicitly political. Uh, a lot of them are set in the past. Uh, it's not to make a, a judgment mm -hmm. about that, but it, I, I did have a, a a feeling going into the Oscars that you know our movie was quite a bit different from the norm of the movies represented at the Oscars, and and I think th that's kind of interesting in the sense that we're living through unbelievably political times right now. We're living through uh, a, a, a moment of, of, I would argue, existential crises when it comes to the, the climate, when it comes to uh, the pandemic and the like. And there aren't, there weren't that many movies uh, uh, represented at the Oscars that were kind of struggling with uh, negotiating with wrestling with the here and now of politics and the divisive issues of the day right now. And I, I don't know exactly what the takeaway from that is, but but I think that's clear. Yeah. And politics now is so much more even personal and emotional than it was, say, in like the 1990s. There was a recent survey that said that, you know, there are a, a, a vastly increasing number of people you know, would refuse to date people from a different political party which is kind of a new, I don't know if it's new, but it's like, it's different than it was a couple decades ago. And so in a polarized environment like that, if you, if you go in with a movie that is going to be loved by kind of one side, then it's going to be hated by the other side, which cuts your audience down. Hollywood might want to say, well, let's just do stuff that's in the past or in a fantasy land. And I'm curious, did, was that a topic of conversation among like the, the artists and writers and actors that you were with throughout this how long were you out there like a, a week or less or yeah i was there i was there for a week i mean i think i think that's right i think if politics is now seen as personal identity in a way that it wasn't necessarily in the past in other words i have uh, i'm this or that party and that's mm -hmm. how i organize my self-perception and organize my life right. and who represents I'm... your values and right exactly then what that encourages, I think, in decisions about cultural programming is is risk aversion. Okay, we, we want to make cultural products that don't even get into that 
because if we want the widest possible audience, then if we take a side politically, it alienates us from one part of the audience. And so mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's the way I think about it. I'm saying I, I think that's the way a lot of the, uh, some of the folks who run the cultural industries uh, think about things because they're thinking about how to make sure their cultural products reach the broadest audience. And so what the effect of it is in practice is uh, cultural products that don't necessarily struggle with those issues uh, for fear of political controversy, for fear of alienating a piece of the audience. And so when I was out there and, and talking to folks about this, one piece of feedback was that Adam McKay the great Adam McKay, my, my friend and collaborator and, and just an all-around fantastic guy, that he's the guy who has figured out how to do uh, uh, movies, television shows, and the like uh, that do explicitly deal with political issues. He's kind of the go-to guy for that. Uh, that there's, the, the feedback is, is that Adam's the one who can do that stuff. And it's harder for others to do the kinds of things that he does. So that's, in, in a sense, it's, it's sort of his lane, quote unquote. But of course, the, the, the downside of, of that, and it's fantastic, it's great for Adam. But the downside of that is that it's sort of like, well, if Adam's doing it, then the rest of the industry doesn't have to do it. Because <laughs> right. he's got McKay's it. Got so, that. so he's supposedly got it covered. Yeah, he's got that. That's McKay. And, and what's frustrating about that is that no like everybody should be doing that we we need we need more content that is struggling with the here and now that is making the audience uh, uncomfortable or at least wrestling with issues that make the audience uncomfortable the idea that one guy's got it and everyone else can, should go over here and 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 do do other stuff that doesn't wrestle with that stuff i just think that's 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 not serving what the audience uh, wants and needs. And I would, I would argue that the success, the popular success of Don't Look Up, you know, the, the second most watched film on the world's largest streaming platform, second only to uh, Red Notice, uh, the movie with mm. The Rock and Ryan Reynolds, a kind of adventure action movie. The fact that a kind of climate movie even got close mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, a blockbuster uh, a, a movie like that. I would argue that suggests there's a huge pent up demand and and huge potential audience for films and television shows that do explicitly struggle uh, with issues that that are scary uh, that are in the here and now uh, and 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 again I, I think the reason that our movie elicited such a reaction and I, I knew it was going to elicit a big reaction but some people loved it some people hated it is because when you're when you're struggling with the here and now. Everybody has a passionate opinion about the here and now. In contrast to you may not have a strong opinion about uh, movies and television shows set, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Like Henry VIII. Yeah, like you're, you may not, right, exactly. You may not have like a really passionate political response to that. But if you're talking about, you know, how does the president and Congress deal with an emergency and that's a movie about that or a satire about that, you're going to have probably some kind of, of, of serious opinion. And I, I wonder if his particular politics play into this a little bit. I mean, on, on the one hand, he's obviously kind of has a unique talent that he, that he brings to, you know, all the different projects he does, but, but also Hollywood is, 
you know, fair, and tell me if, if this is, if the stereotype is correct, having, you know, been in it now for a little bit, that it's just kind of partisan Democrat, like that it's kind of a superficial, we're, de- we're Democrats and not going much deeper than that. Whereas McKay has always been willing to criticize Democrats as well as criticize Republicans. And don't look up is no different. Like, you know, everybody comes in for, for criticism there, including the protagonists of the, of the film, like the, the scientists, you know, have, have all sorts of problems that he sends up, that, that you both send up as well. So do you, do you think it's his willingness to go after Democrats as well and liberals as well in some of the other shows that yeah I, I i mean i would i would make it i would broaden it a little a little bit and say it's 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 nominally democrat it's however you want to characterize it the kind of left of center msnbc liberal middle right mm-hmm. these kind of he ha, he has produced uh, uh movies television shows and the like which don't just indict the right, although he does that plenty. I mean, you mm-hmm. watch Vice, uh, one of my favorite movies, and there's a lot about the, you know, obviously it's all about the neocons and, and the like. But yes, he's somebody who's willing to have a, a political analysis that shows the complicity of the sort of center of the Democratic Party, the kind of liberal... Uh, a power elite that runs the Democratic Party, and I put liberal in quotes because I'm not actually sure how liberal or left that 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 part of the of our politics are. But I think that that is the part of politics um, that doesn't get a lot of criticism, and that the criticism is uh, is received uh, in a lot of ways as it's not accepted all that well because it can be easily framed as you're helping the Republicans. Right. I mean, I think that's, that that's the world we live in now, which is, which is stifling in this sense that our politics have become so tribalized. You're either a Democrat or you're a Republican that it has, especially on the democratic side, it has made it much more difficult to, have an analysis outside of that, uh, let's say a progressive or, or left anchored analysis of politics without being accused of helping the far right. It's, it's kind of like the, the, we live in a world where the argument that was made about Ralph Nader in the 2000 election, oh, you helped elect George Bush, has now become baked into how people view uh, politics, democratic politics. If you are a Bernie Sanders, if you are uh, the squad, if you are uh, an activist or, or a, uh, an organization uh, criticizing the Democratic Party uh, from the proverbial left, you're actually making common cause with the right as the argument goes. I and mean, I reject that argument, but I think, I think our culture is so sensitive to that argument that, that that's why in, in a sense, why McKay's work is in part seen as so controversial because he's willing to make that analysis. And I would argue that that analysis <laughs> is correct. That analysis, his analysis is honest and real. Like if you can't admit that the corrupt center of the Democratic Party is part 
of the problem on so many issues, then you're not being honest with how the world works. I mean, uh, not to get too far afield here, but if you can't look at uh, something like you know student debt or uh, drug prices right now and look at the center of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, refusing to sign executive orders to cancel student debt, reduce student debt or lower uh, prescription drug prices. If you can't admit that and you think somebody mentioning that is is somehow uh, disloyal and helping uh, the Republicans, uh, then you're not living in reality. Uh, and I think McKay's work and I think our movie, uh, Don't Look Up, uh, is aimed at presenting or at least criticizing the, in part the reality of that situation, which of course is going to elicit a particularly strong reaction. And I'll just add one other thing. It will, I think it, it elicits an even stronger reaction than if you just criticize the right. That, that yes, the American right is hostile to critiques of its ideology, certainly, but that the center of the Democratic Party is just as hostile to honest criticism of its corruption as the American right is to criticism of its extremism and corruption. And how, how invested are people in kind of defending the center of the party out in Hollywood? Because I, I could see it going either way. But to me, it seems like for some of them, it's just a, like the, the way that in, say, the former Soviet Union or, the, or, or in China, like if you rise to a certain level, you just join the Chinese Communist Party. Like that's, that's kind of what you do. Like that's the, that's the, it doesn't mean you kind of have bought into all of the politics and ideology of it, but like to rise through the ranks, that's what you do. So yeah, it, and if that's the kind of looseness of the connection that people feel with it, I could see why it would be easier to just say, you know what, let's just, let's just skip all this anyway, because I don't really feel like dealing with it. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I, I think at the at the top of the of the industry, and we're speaking broadly here, but I think at the top of the entertainment industry, uh, there are a lot of folks who are real big D Democratic Party kind of people at the big, very top. Big of amounts the of money to uh, I think across the country, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those are right. Those are those are big D Democrats. I I, I think a lot of them their their political analysis doesn't go. Uh, much farther than than you know the the Democrats are, if not good, they're the rational, uh, quote unquote, normal party, and the Republicans are uh, extremists and they're going to follow science. The deep end. But I, 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 right, exactly. But I, but I also think that that just because you're a big D uh, Democrat in the context of politics today doesn't mean your ideology is particularly uh, progressive. Uh, especially on like economic issues or stuff like, you know, unions or, or regulation and the like. I, I think it's just the Democratic, I mean, the Democratic Party is in a sense, a, a, one of the two parties of big business. So I think if you're at the top of one of the biggest businesses in, in America, and you're a Democrat, it doesn't mean you're some, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, uh, Democrat or the like. It, it, it can mean you're, you know, you've chosen one of the two big business parties uh, to affiliate with. But I will say this, I think at the rank and file, quote unquote, talent level, what I mean by that is not not the executives, not the folks r- running the, this, the, you know, the, the industry, but the, the actors and the uh, screenwriters and the producers and, and the like. Look, I think I, I, I've met a lot of people uh, who uh, wanted to talk to me about uh, what it was like to be Bernie Sanders press secretary, 
uh, and way back and, and, and speechwriter on his presidential campaign. I, I met a lot of, of folks uh, who uh, definitely don't seem satisfied with uh, the Democratic Party and who have a much more uh, progressive analysis of where uh, where the con- they believe the country sh- should be going and, and, and a lot of dissatisfaction with where it is going. And so I, I do think there's kind of a tension between uh, the folks who make movies and television shows, the artists uh, and uh, the industry. Uh, and, and, and so I think what, what's great about McKay is, is that he exists in a space where he's been able to actually make product, cultural products at scale uh, and bring in uh, incredibly uh, well-known and talented uh, artists, actors, and the like, to to uh, produce those those cultural products, and, and the industry, I think, uh, has supported him because the products are successful. I mean, ultimately, that is how the folks at the top of the industry are judging things. Which is, in 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 some ways, it's like an mm-hmm. apolitical judgment. Hey. If this TV show or movie is successful, uh, that's good for the for the bottom line, and so that's a success. And so, success begets success. So, all of McKay's past movies that have been so commercially successful have helped create the space for him uh, to do more of that. Uh, in 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 some ways, it's kind of like he hacked the system. Like he he found like a mm-hmm. like a glitch in the matrix, and and it's. And so it was a real, um, it's profit, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, (laughs) you know, like it was, it was such a thrill to, to be able to work with somebody who has found the glitch in the matrix. Right. I mean, I, I started out with don't look up. I I couldn't believe the movie was actually going to be made. Like I remember saying that to him, I cannot believe a movie that says what we're saying is actually going to be made on a huge platform. Uh, and Ultimately, the reason it was made was because a he's he's an amazing scriptwriter and and an amazing director and, and and b I think that Netflix wasn't making a political judgment. They were saying Adam McKay is successful. He's got a great script. He's a great filmmaker, and this is going to be a, a kind of a bottom line success for us. And so McKay he came to the table saying, you know, I want to make this movie. It's an important message. And, and so the sort of Venn diagram is, you know, Netflix's interest of, we want to make a successful product and McKay's interest in, I want to make a success, successful product that has a, a, a set of political messages that may be controversial, but I believe are important. Like they found agreement and, and, and that is a glitch in the matrix. And he wound up getting like half, like half that Half the tables near the front of the stage seemed probably had an actor uh, who was who was in Don't Look Up. <laughs> right. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Were you there for, or how, how, did, how did the slap go down? It was, you, you had left the room or something at that point, right? Yes. So we had just, they had just announced the um, winners and losers of the uh. <laughs> um, screenplay awards, the uh, adapted and original. Uh, and, 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 and I want to be very clear about this. And McKay and I talked a lot about this, that we were prepared to go into the Oscars up until about a week before the Oscars, knowing and thinking that we had absolutely no chance to win. We, we were shocked that we got nominated with the, in the sense of the politics of our movie. Uh, the, the, the Academy is not, um, often not interested in platforming, um, sort of explicitly political movies. So we were, we were shocked and happy that we got nominated. But we were prepared to go in there thinking, hey, we have, we have, we literally have no chance to win any awards at all. Uh, it's great to be nominated, but we just don't have any chance. Then, about a week before the Oscars, we won, Adam and I won, uh, for uh, Best Original Screenplay from the Writers Guild, the mm-hmm. WGA, which is, which is a huge award. I mean, because it's a the really, writers. and I was, I was completely shocked, but it's, it's a, yes, it's like a big deal award. So Adam and I talked about this, about how it kind of messed with our minds because it was like, that was awesome to win the WGA award for original screenplay. But it also was like, wait a minute, I wonder if we have a chance to win the Oscar, right? Like it kind of, it kind of got into our minds. So when we, when we didn't win, I will, uh, and by the way, we, we practiced all week. He and I practiced all week uh, with each other, making our faces look <laughs> happy when we didn't win. Right. Like we actually practiced that. And, and, and actually we, we told Paul Thomas Anderson that what, the, what, what's the key it, you have to, I think you have to just like, you have to literally practice looking happy when you're not happy. Right. Right. So, so like literally, and, and we told Paul Thomas Anderson this, he was sitting right next to us because the, the, the buzz was licorice pizza was going to win and, and, and licorice pizza didn't win by the way. So after licorice pizza didn't win, uh, uh, we told Paul Thomas Anderson, we were sort of commiserating with him. We said to him, like, listen, Adam and I were practicing, like, uh, and the winner is licorice pizza. And Adam and I would clap and look happy. That's how we practiced. And we told Paul Thomas Anderson that. I'm not sure it made him feel any better. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, that's a long way of saying Belfast wins. And the Oscar goes to Kenneth Branagh, Belfast. So Adam and I, you know, practiced, you know, we, we were clapping and looking happy. Uh, uh, and uh, Coda won for best uh, adapted screenplay. Uh, and so me, Adam, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Peter Sarsgaard uh, went out. Peter Sarsgaard is Maggie's uh, husband. We went out, outside, out to the bar for a drink uh, to sort of, uh, you know, just the, the announcement had made, take the edge off, have a drink. We were having a drink, um, and we were actually kind of talking about how um, how how weird the the Oscars were in the sense of like there there hadn't up until that point been much mention of kind of the outside world, like what's going on in the world. It was a very 
you know, very mm-hmm. Oscar-ish kind of, kind of show. And I had never been to one. And, and, you know, we, I think we, we had said something, you know, sort of about, you know, where are the politics in this show? Like where, where's the, there's been no mention of climate change or anything. And it's, you know, and, and all of a sudden we hear somebody came up to us and said, you know, something like Will Smith had slapped uh, Chris Rock. Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. And, and like, if you, if you hear that, you, you don't even know what it means, right? Like if you haven't seen the video clip and somebody says that and you're at the Oscars, it, it doesn't really make, like, what does that even mean? He slapped, like, that doesn't make sense, right? So, so, and then it was like the video, something about the, there was, a, it was on delay. It didn't go out on TV or in theory, it didn't go out on TV. So, so we, we went back in uh, a little while later and what was bizarre to me was that, so then we see Will Smith get named best actor and he gives this speech where he's crying and, and sort of blubbering. Now I know to do what we do, you got to be able to take abuse. You got to be able to have people talk crazy about you in this business. You got to be able to have people disrespecting you and you got to smile and you got to pretend like that's okay. And he's, he's obviously uh, making reference to what had just happened. I want to apologize to the Academy. I want to apologize to my, all my fellow nominees. But we didn't, it was like hard to understand what he was referencing because we hadn't seen it. We're like trapped in this bubble. And, and it was just so weird uh, that that all happened. And I'm getting like my text, my phone is like blowing up. Oh my God, were you there for the slap? And I, and I, I and I I had to basically admit to people I, w- I wasn't even there. I was like, you know, I I, I should have been ten feet away, but I was out sort of <laughs> out at the bar feeling bad, drinking with Maggie Gyllenhaal and Peter Sarsgaard and, and Adam. You know, we weren't even we weren't even there. And and actually, Peter texted me when I texted. Him, I was like, man, it was like afterwards. I texted him and I was like, it's really hilarious. We were outside at the bar, kind of lamenting, uh, the, you know, the sort of uh, what was going on at the show and sort of lack of politics and the like while the biggest moment of the show was unfolding, which was two celebrities essentially fighting with each other. And he basically texted back and said, yeah, it was perfect timing to go get a drink. <laughs> and so like my understanding, there was like a standing ovation uh, for Will Smith when he's giving his speech. And so now there, now here you are, you're, there's a standing ovation, but you don't really understand what is being ovated. Like what, what are people celebrating? It's all confusion. Like how, how do you handle that situation? Do you, stay seated you stand up because you're like well everybody else is standing up i guess i gotta stand up like how what was what was that moment like honestly i i i can't remember i can't remember if i stood up or not but i do remember not knowing what was like what was going on like i was i was confused about why will smith was crying and 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 his speech, yeah. like he, honestly, I, I haven't even gone back and watched it, but his speech seemed. If you didn't know what had just happened thirty minutes ago, then his speech doesn't. Ma- it, it seems like com- like totally incoherent. So I, I I didn't know what was what was going on, but in retrospect, it's totally bizarre. The the sort of the slap happened, and then it was like as if nothing happened, and then he goes up and he wins, and everyone's cheering like. I'm not exactly like, listen, 2020 hindsight. I'm not exactly sure 
I mean, there's a, a good argument to be made. He should have been removed, or, or there should have been some intervention or something. Did you did you see anybody come up to him? No, I, I mean, Denzel Washington made some reference. He was sort of, I think he sort of like said something to him uh, on the stage. But but it what? Listen, it wasn't like he was all of a sudden radioactive in that room after right. that happened. Like it was like physically, like meaning like it was just like the show went on. I mean, it was like literally like the show must go on. So, so it was, you know, like if you, if you hadn't seen, like, if you were like me, if you hadn't seen what had happened and you came back into the theater, you'd just think, oh, it's just nothing happened. Like it's just the the show continues, which is kind of really in retrospect is kind of, kind of, kind of insane. Do you, I heard somebody speculate that everybody was applauding him because of the power dynamic that you talked about that like, He's going to keep making huge movies and people want, people want to be close to the people that are at the very top. And so it, it, it's not Stalinist. Like, you know, there was this joke in, in Soviet Russia that, you know, the, the person who stopped clapping first, you know, was going to get like dragged out by, by like Stalin's goons. <laughs> and so they would, you know, he would be applauded for like 45 <laughs> minutes, like people like just falling over at, in exhaustion, applauding that there was a similar version of it. Well, listen, I mean, the, 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 yeah, the power dynamic is real in this sense. Had I gone up on stage <laughs> and slapped Chris Rock, uh, I would be in, I would I'm be tr- in the I'm jail cell, right? I, you know, I would be, I would have been dragged away immediately, right? Like, so, so obviously there is a power dynamic in that sense. And I think there's also like, look, Will Smith knows everybody there. I mean, and and I should step back and say this, that one thing that's interesting, not surprising, is that, is that everybody in that room knows everybody, right? I I mean, I, in the sense of, I felt like a fish out of water in the sense I knew nobody in in that room. So, but everybody has worked with everybody. So er, everybody is, is, is essentially familiar. Mm -hmm. It's like a small town. Everybody's familiar with everybody. So in, in, in some ways there's like this casualness about it. Uh, so Will Smith is like, you know, a guy who's been in the small town forever. And so I don't know if there was kind of eye rolling or, or what it was. It, so it, there was sort of a vibe of like, this is a family mm-hmm. spat. This is not a big, you know, international, uh, you know, moment on television in front of a billion people. Um, so, but, but yes, the power dynamic is, is such that if, had it been someone else who did that, uh, I think the reaction would have been would have been uh, very different. And Will Smith really is like an institution in Hollywood, and he's been an institution in Hollywood for 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 decades. Now, I will say, I, I you know, one thing that's fascinating to me about this is that Will Smith has been, if not angling for, he's been in the orbit of getting an Oscar for for decades. And what's incredible to me is that. 30 minutes, 40 minutes before he's about to finally get the Oscar that, that he's been in the orbit of for 30 years, he has this, I don't know if it's a breakdown or just he cracks or, and I kind of wondered, and this is, and to be clear, this is not to absolve him at all. What he did was outrageous and un, unacceptable, but I kind of wonder how much the pressure of the moment and the anticipation of the moment was also at play in his reaction. In other words, no matter how big a star you are in in Hollywood, when you're in that room and you're waiting to see if you're going to win the Oscar, that pre- you can tell that that pressure 
that anticipation, that anxiety is, I mean, it is all throughout that room, no matter how big a star you are. Uh, I, you could sort of sense that, 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 and so I, I just, I just think it's interesting because you think like Will right. Smith has been famous in a huge Hollywood institution forever. Who cares like, about what, does he really yeah. care about getting an Oscar? I mean, like it'll be right. But like one thing that I have learned from the Oscar experience, not a huge revelation is that, is that the Oscars do this incredible job of like building up their importance like from from the moment we I, I was named a nominee, it was you know the, the, about the you know, you, there's all this messaging about the history of being a nominee and you've joined this sort of incredible you know 95 year history. So they do a really amazing job of sort of creating a self perception of of the significance of, of of being a nominee and winning an Oscar. And I think and it's it's kind of amazing that that you can tell that that. Um, that, that that is uh, understood and and gets into the psyche of even the biggest stars. It, it says something interesting about humanity and the human condition too. That you know, there's this idea that neoliberalism has tried to inject into the bloodstream that money is the only thing that really can motivate people, but it's not true. No, no. Like, I mean, money mostly people are much deeper than that. Yeah, I mean, listen, money money makes the world go round, but power and status which are obviously related to money are also huge forces and the oscars uh, are in hollywood uh, are considered the ultimate form uh, of status now i want to be clear I, like getting the wga award is as meaningful to me uh, as being an Oscar nominee, or if we had won, winning an Oscar, because the writers—that that is a, 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 a an award from the best, the most successful, best writers in that industry, given to other writers. But the WGA is obviously not as well known, and in you know, in a strange way, is not as as quote unquote prestigious, whatever that word means, as an Oscar, uh, because. And, and if you start really unpacking why that is, it's really fascinating how the Oscars have kind of created, how the Academy has created this thing that's kind of intangible, but is so powerful, right? I mean, the Academy Award, think about how, you know, as somebody said to me, uh, they said, in your obituary, you can you can have four, there are four or five uh, uh cultural labels that will exist in your obituary if you ever get them. And it's, you know, a Nobel Prize, uh, a knighthood, uh, arguably the Pulitzer Prize, uh, and an Oscar or an Oscar nomination is on there. And what's interesting is you start asking, well, why is that? And and it's actually hard to answer that question. Right. Like, I don't, I, I'm not even sure why exactly that is. But it's it, in in, a, in in one sense, it's kind of a credit to the academy for their skill in kind of creating this talisman, this this award that is so uh, well known and kind of revered for reasons that are hard to explain. Right, right. It kind of is because it is. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, I, I mean that is the and it's interesting. And like just as like a somebody who works in politics and you know worked on campaigns, I, I kind of marvel at the brilliance of that because it kind of, it, it's like a Jedi mind trick. I mean, the funny thing is, is that on, uh, you can ask my wife, this is I like, I was not caught up in this at all. 
like I was like, we, yeah, I'm like, that's amazing to be a nominee and it's incredible. And that's, I can't believe the movie got made. And by the time the, they were announcing who won the nomination, I was like, I really, I really hope we win. And then I, I would, I would, my inside my brain, I'd be like, why do I care if we win? Right. Like, I don't even, like, I don't even know why I care. I can't answer why I care. <laughs> yep. They win. So is this, uh, was this a one-time well, not one time, but is, is this a dalliance with Hollywood? You, we got another project. What's how how what's your relationship now with this with this industry? You gonna you thinking of another project? Yeah, I mean, I, we've got I've got a couple projects that are that are in the works. Uh, I have no idea if they're gonna go forward. That's one thing. One thing I've learned about Hollywood is whether something is gonna happen or not. It uh, changes can change every day. Can actually change every hour. So. I, you know, the, the, the way to survive, I think, in that world is to put as many irons in, in the fire as possible and hope one comes back. So I've got a, I've got a couple, and, and, and I should say they all deal with politics, I mean, and, and sort of the, the issues of the day. I mean, I certainly will say this for myself, which is that I, I don't want to do movies, television shows, and the like if they're just kind of frivolous stuff uh, or escapist kind of stuff. If I'm going to work in and around that industry a little bit, I want it to be based on my my values and my politics, and and I should add that that in in some ways that'll probably if I end up working doing more work in in, in Hollywood that'll probably limit the opportunities. But I'm okay with that because I mean this is why I love Adam McKay so much. He inspires me in in the sense of somebody who's willing to infuse their work in that industry with his values, knowing that that can make the path more difficult. Uh, but as I kind of go back to this old quote that I've been thinking a lot about from politics lately, uh, and it's a Lyndon Johnson quote. Uh, and it's the quote of what the hell is the presidency for? And mm-hmm. that was Johnson basically talking to his advisors about the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and they were sort of saying, maybe you shouldn't push it forward now. And he said, well, I mean, the thrust of the comment is, what's the point of being in this office right. if not to do these kinds of things? And I kind of think about that. I think there's actually a, a deeper lesson in that for all of everybody who does any of this work, which is if you're working in and around politics uh, or you're, uh, you're in journalism or you're in uh, Hollywood, what's the point of, of doing that work if you're not going to infuse it with your values? Yes, it's going to make your path harder. I like that. That's a, that's a, I think, for me, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make uh, if I can, you know, as long as I can sort of, sort of survive, uh, and, and then I'm willing to, you know, limit opportunities if that's the cost of having the work be based on your values. And I think it was, by the way, there's a, there's a, there's another, I, I'm not sure if this is an apocryphal story or not, but I've heard this story told a couple times about an, uh, another guy uh, in Hollywood, uh, the, the recently departed uh, Ed Asner, uh, great amazing actor uh, with great politics. And as the story goes, somebody asked him, hey, well, why are you always, why are you so political? Like, why are, why are you going out and helping these movements and, and using your platform to, to kind of push progressive causes when you know that that, um, that may cause controversy, may make it harder for you to work as an actor? And as the story goes, his response is, I, I do that because I, I, I want to be able to get up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror. I want to be able to... to to, to, to know that I'm not just sort of selling out or focused on myself. I'm trying, I'm, I'm here to do, uh, to do things that are based on my values. And I think like 
that's why Adam McKay is such a, a, an inspiration to me, is that is somebody who is at the top of a in, in enormously powerful industry, uh, who has been willing uh, to use uh, his, essentially his political capital in that industry uh, to make things that aren't just entertaining, although they certainly are entertaining, but to infuse them with values, knowing that that is going to cause controversy and the like. And at, at the same time, what, what's it been like watching the, the rollout of the film and then the, re, the reaction to it? You know, it's, it's the, the initial reaction started out, all this conversation about Adam McKay and his, uh, his beef with, with Will Ferrell, instead, <laughs> instead of the focus on, the, on this movie, which is about the way, you know, that, that culture trivializes existential threats. And then it ends with a multi, <laughs> multi-day conversation about Will Smith slapping Chris mm-hmm. Rock on, on stage while it's what, it's like 70 degrees uh, in the North Pole. <laughs> I know. I said to McKay at one point. I said it kind of feels like we're 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 Randall Mindy and Kate DiBiaschi. Like it's it's like we're we're, we're the two. Like there, it's like a it's like a, a a meta version of our movie unfolded with the release and promotion of our movie. We're we, I mean, I and I look. I put it out there. The speech that I had in my pocket, and folks can find it at levernews.com. I put out I I put out this the this little speech right. And by the way, they told they they they. They told you uh, at the Oscar nominees lunch to make the speech really short. So, folks, some folks have emailed me being like, "Was was that really all you were going to say?" And I was like, "Listen, uh, they they tell you at the very beginning if you win, you have that music thirty seconds to say. So it's basically you have one line of thank yous and one line of whatever you want to say. And what I was going to say, if we had actually won, I was going to say everybody in this room has an absolutely enormous amount of power. Every single person in that room all the nominees all that industry has so much power please use that power to sound the alarm for uh, climate action uh, you know the comet is coming uh i didn't get to say that uh, uh i and and to be honest that was the biggest disappointment for me was not not getting getting a statue it was that is that i i really wanted folks to hear that um and and instead the takeaway from the entire award show is this fight between celebrities and it I think the entire experience, the positive way of spinning of spinning it is, is that the entire experience of releasing and promoting the movie, um, uh, uh, kind of proved the accuracy of the depiction of the movie's depiction of the world. Yes. <laughs> that we're, we're fighting this, you know, we're, we're fighting to get the climate message out there, and you know, uh, it starts with Will, you know, a, a Will Ferrell a, a controversy, and ends with a, you know, this thing about. Chris Rock and and Will Smith. Uh, So the I would argue that uh, you know Don't Look Up's depiction of the world was was proven by our experience. Um, And 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 I I think the you know the kind of negative and take on that is is if you if you can't get the message out, or if it's if the message is suppressed or or kind of blocked on a movie that had, you know, hundreds of millions of people watch it, uh, and it's still that experience, you can kind of wonder, is any message going to get out? I mean, I, 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 the negative side of my brain says, we just made a huge movie, and I, I'm not, like, did it make any, did it make any impact? Uh, no pun intended. The other part of me is like, you know, the, the whole award show circuit and the like is easy to distract you from the impact uh, it, it did make. 
Right. I mean, I had, I, I kept saying, uh, and I, I believe ultimately that whether we won this or that award or didn't win this award, that award or how great, how cool it was to be nominated and, or we didn't win the, the Oscar, uh, the, the success of the movie is hundreds of millions of people watching it is the climate movement using, uh, uh, don't look up or just look up, uh, uh as a, a clarion call. That's the true success of the movie. And, and that, that's way bigger than any uh, award. Right. And I, I think it gave people a language to decode what they're seeing in, in the real world. Like the don't look up, just look up are good examples. So as you know, if you're looking at the fossil fuel industry's propaganda around climate change, and you know, you, you can try to dissect and deconstruct that in an intellectual level, or you can say, that's like the guy who says he's for the jobs the comet's going to bring. And boom, <laughs> exactly. you understand and you understand it right there. And giving exactly. people that ability to understand it in the same way that Dr. Strangelove, you know, gave it to the kind of the simple And I and I will Hawks. say one one other one other thing that I really enjoyed about the whole Oscar experience. And, and maybe I'm deluded, maybe not. But one of the reactions that I most consistently received from actors, from other directors, when I, you know, at the governor's ball, uh, a- after the Oscars, was a essentially some version of thank you for making this movie. In other words, it wasn't just hey your movie was great or hey I really liked your movie. It was it was essentially thank you for doing this particular movie. And what I take away from that is that there are a lot of of artists and people working in Hollywood who appreciated that we made a movie that did lean into the climate message uh, and the message about science and that there was almost a, a, an appreciation for how rare that is and an appreciation that we managed to pull it off on such a big scale. So that's encouraging to me in the sense of it, it, the reaction wasn't like, oh, you guys are weirdos or you guys are like, I, like you know, it was, it was a very, it, there was almost like a, like a, it was like a, like a whispered, like, man, thanks, thanks, thanks so much for, for, for doing that. Right. Which, which says to me, there's not only an audience appetite for this kind of content, but I think there's an, an appetite among the creative, the creatives in Hollywood to do this kind of thing and an interest in in doing doing more of it. So my hope moving forward is that same message I was going to say in the in the if we had won the Oscar, which is like let's do more of this. We we just proved that it, it can be commercially successful, so let's do more. So if the last thing if one of the legacies of the movie is to help create the space for more Adam McKay's, right? Like 15, 20 other Adam McKay's who make movies like this, that would be a huge accomplishment as well. Yeah. And I think it makes us all feel a little bit less crazy. And so I'll, I'll say it too. Thank you for making this. It made me feel less crazy watching it unfold like that. And congratulations. It is, as they say, it, it's an honor just to be nominated. And thank you for joining me here on Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. 
Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is the Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a review or a rating. We're both. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. I thought Zendaya killed it in her two-piece Valentino. I mean, she was fantastic. Jada Pinkett Smith, I think she looks gorgeous. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth! <coughs> yes. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.